Good morning. My name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn Heights. Um, as she said, we're in a series on the book of Samuel. Samuel is part of what we call the Old Testament. The Old Testament is the Bible that comes before Jesus, and, and we read it as this forerunner and foreshadow to the story of Jesus. Um, and Samuel um, is about the rise of a man named King David. But David, like us, was anything but perfect. And today, we get a front row seat to the fall of David. Now, if you're new to Sojourn, uh, we, we do not avoid serious topics or serious passages around here. Some of you, uh, I know at least two of you in the room right now, your first Sunday was the day we talked human trafficking. So, welcome. Um, this is not that, but it is nonetheless serious. So, let's talk. A few years ago, Forbes um, had an article uh, where they diagnosed the, uh, the reason that great leaders fell. And their diagnosis was this, that, that there is a common thread, a common road, if you will, and at the heart of it, at the beginning of it, uh, it all begins with uh, ego. And the point was that when you look at the data, there's a consistent uh, pattern. Um, it never begins with a public event. Right, the fall of leaders doesn't begin with the public event. It begins in the dark room of the human soul. And then there's a series of small events that lead to the major events. That's not just true of famous leaders. It's true for us. Leaders in our homes and in our workplaces and in our church. Right, affairs don't begin with an affair. Embezzlement doesn't begin with embezzlement. Addiction doesn't begin with addiction begins in the dark room of the human soul that leads to a series of smaller events that lead to the major public event. And if we'll listen, if we'll listen, in our text today, we are going to find some very practical help. Very practical help for how to prevent ourselves from going down, walking down the road that David walked, or what to do if we're already on it. So let's go. Verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David, but David remained at Jerusalem. Why did David remain at Jerusalem? What, what's that in there for? Like, why, why is it screaming, hey, listen, they all went out to battle, but David, not, not him, Jerusalem. Here's why. Kings went to battle. They didn't just ship men out and say, hey, go do it. Kings went out to battle. See, here's the, um, the, the point that is leaping off the page in verse 1. The fall of David began like this. It began with David somewhere he never belonged. The fall of David, that, what began the spiral that would be David's life in chapter 11, began with David somewhere he didn't belong. And I told you this is going to be very practical. Here's very practical help from this one. Right, you, you want to deal with whatever's going on. You, you want to fight porn? You, you want to overcome your addiction to porn? Get off the computer in the middle of the night. Don't be somewhere you don't belong. 
Uh, if, you, if you have a roommate, um, here, here's what you guys can do. Take your phone, or ladies, I didn't mean guys and like guys, but you, male, female, right? Um, as a side note, we are not unaware that porn is not a male issue only, all right? T- take your phones, 8 p.m., put them in a common place where everyone knows where your phones are at. Now, you don't actually need your phone with you in your room in the middle of the night. Don't let yourself go somewhere you don't belong. Now, watch what the author does. Verse 2. It happens. Late one afternoon, when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her. He's on the roof, he looks out, sees a woman bathing, finds her, it says, very beautiful, finds her attractive, and he sends for her, and he takes her. And the language that's used here, the way this is written, is screaming at us. I mean, the author wrote this in such a way that it is begging for our attention to just fly back to Genesis 1 through 3. Genesis 1 is the story of creation when God creates the world and God does it in a series of days. And then verse 31, this is what what it says. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. Now here's the parallels that the author in Samuel wants us to see. God saw, David saw, same word. But you know what else? Very good very beautiful. Same word. Same word. And in the way that God looked at creation and went, oh, that's good. David looked at the woman and said, oh, that's good. But unfortunately, the parallels don't end in Genesis 1. Genesis 3, we have the chapter where sin enters the world. There's a fracture in humanity in God. And in verse 6, so when the woman saw, same word, that the tree was good for food and that it was light to the eyes, same idea, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took, she took of, of its fruit and ate. She took the fruit. David took the woman. See, what the author is trying to say is this. What the author is trying to say in Samuel, that sex is meant to be in line with Genesis 1, where God looks, says it's very good, and then he gives it away. That sex is meant to be the self-giving union where I give myself away. It's not meant to be something where I take. It's not meant to be something where I take. But David here is treating sex in line with Genesis 3, not Genesis 1, where just like Eve took the forbidden fruit, David took the forbidden fruit. And he ate. And when he did, and when you do, when you treat sex in line with Genesis 3 and not Genesis 1, it will become transactional every single time. Let me show you. Verse 4. 
So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. All right, how do I, how do I know that this is transactional right here? Um, uh, here's how I know. In the original, which the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, we translate into English uh, since, you know, most of us, I assume all of us aren't English, I mean, Hebrew speakers around here. But in the original, you, you, know, what the, you know what the author just did? You know how many words the author used? Eight. Eight words. Here they are. He sent, he took, she came, he lay. Was a, you, you, here's how the author described the scene. He sent, he took, she came, he lay. No mention of affection, no mention of feeling, no mention of anything, just he sent, he took, she came, he lay. Transactional. And when sex becomes transactional, there will always, always be a personal spiral that follows. And we see in Adam... Not in Adam, that's not true, in David, where it begins and where it ends, and it begins with deception. Verse 6. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite, Bathsheba's husband. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to David, came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. So here's the deception going on in here. Um, the, the way that this is, uh, what, what he's literally asking is, hey, uh, how, how's it shaloming over there? He uses the word shalom here three times. Shalom is this um, Hebrew word that, that's meant to just capture this like complete and total human flourishing. I, I think it's fair to say it captures the idea of what it means when God looks and says, oh, that's very good. It's very good. And the way that he asks it, he, he says this. He says, hey, um, hey, how is Joab? Is he shaloming? How about the people? Are they shaloming? How about the war? Is it shaloming? And here's the deception. Shalom, when David sent for her and he took her and he lay with her, shalom that is meant to exist inside a marriage is what he has just destroyed. What he has just destroyed is what he's asking about. He has destroyed the shalom that's meant to exist inside a marriage. And he's asking how the people, are they shaloming? How's Job? Shaloming? How about the war? Shaloming? You want some more backstory? I guess more backstory. Uriah wasn't just her husband. There was also a point where David was on the run. His life was in danger. And these mighty men, it says, came out and they, uh, they risked their life to save David's. Uriah was one of those men. So practical again. How do you, how do you know if you're at the beginning stages of the spiral? Like, how, how do you know if this is you? Like, this isn't some cute ancient story, but how do you know if, like, this is, this is where you're at? Here, here's a question for you. Are, are you deceiving even the people that you're closest to? Like, are you known uh, a little bit by everybody, but fully by nobody? 
or if I could illustrate it this way. Are you on a first date with everyone? Not an actual first date, but I mean, like, you know, on the, the first date where you're there and you probably maybe go get coffee and then you go to dinner and uh, you're just both really pretending to be somebody else, right? Um, which is what's so baffling. Like, well, we went on a date and he was so great or she was so awesome. It's like, you don't know. Like, you don't know. You don't know. You just both smile. Nobody shows up on the first date and goes, listen, I have, I have been depressed my whole life. Um, <laughs> like, I am so anxious right now. You just don't. No. Uh, maybe some of y'all did. I, I don't know. I see some awkward looks out there. Uh, if you did, well done. Like, proud of you. Um, marry that dude. Marry that girl right now. Um, not right now. I'm going to finish this, and then you can do it after. Um, are you on a first date with everyone? Do, do you live a life of constant deception? Begins with deception, but it isn't in there. Next comes cover up. Verse 8. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. Wash your feet. This is not David going, Hey, Uriah, bro, you stink, man. Like, you got some body odor. I can smell it come from your feet. Go wash them. Wash your feet was a Hebrew euphemism. It meant go have sex. You're saying, Hey, go sleep with your wife. Go have sex with your wife. Why? because she's pregnant, man. I don't want it to land on me. I'm going to dodge the bullet. Uh, This was David's ancient version of deleting his web history. It was the ancient version of deleting the, this is where I've been and what I've done. But cover-ups don't always work. In fact, they never do. They, They might just feel like they're working for a while, but they never work. And when it doesn't here, it leads to manipulation. So go wash your feet, verse 8. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? So here, here's the reason that Uriah didn't go down to the house. Um, sex could have been uh, used improperly, right? It could have been a, a means of becoming what was thought of as like ritually impure or think like this, um, God would become angry at you. And it could be um, a reason that you lost the battle that you were in. Like God gets mad at us for how we're living our life and he hands the battle over to others. So there was kind of an agreement, right? None of us even chance it. Here's how we don't chance it. Nobody has sex while we're at battle. And David is saying, hey, man, listen, bro, we all know, like, you've had a long journey. It's been a, it was hard work getting back here. You deserve it, man. You're right. You deserve it. We all know you do. Go. Go wash your feet, man. Haven't, haven't you worked hard? Like, you've been at battle. I'm, go. You deserve this cover-up turn to manipulation, and once it does, when you reach the spot where you're just straight manipulating people around you, here's what's happening. You no longer care about the things that matter most to you, which is where David goes now. Uriah said to David, the ark, quick pause, the ark was the symbol of the relationship between God and his people. The ark 
and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. And my Lord Joab and his servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live, as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today. Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Uriah responds, yeah, I mean, it's, it's been a long journey. It's been a long journey. But the ark is in a poorly constructed tent, and the men are out in fields. I'm not going to sleep with my wife. I'm not doing it. You see, just a few chapters before this, the, the ark being in a tent was a crisis for David. All along, uh, victory in battle mattered to David. And how does he respond here? Nothing about the men, nothing about the ark. See, for the entire rise of David, he valued two things above all else. You ready? People of God, presence of God. And here, nothing. His heart had hardened to what mattered most to him. His heart had grown numb and hard to what mattered most to him. And so how do you know if you've reached this stage? Is your heart numb? Is it numb to what you've done, to what you're doing? Is it numb to the people it's affecting? Has your heart grown numb? You can feel the numbness in David when he just looks back at Uriah and robotically says, okay, stay here tonight. I'll send you back tomorrow. Has your heart grown numb? And now verse 13, one last ditch effort. And David invited him, and he ate and drank in his presence so that he made him drunk. Last it shot by David, desperate effort to cover it up. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. David sends him to the front line of battle carrying his death warrants in his hand. And the spiral of David has reached the point where he takes the life of someone who fought to save his. And what began with David somewhere he didn't belong turned into deception, which led to cover-up, which became manipulation and eventually murder. 
And if you're sitting out there going, man, this is great, but I, I just don't see murder in my future, man. I'd say one, like in light of you ranked to David, that's a, that's a you know, bold, but, but maybe not. Maybe I'll concede murder's not in your future, but this spiral here has killed marriages, killed friendships, killed communities, and our church is not immune. But here's the question that I have for you. Here's the question that I've been waiting to ask you. We, we just read this story a few minutes ago. She got up here and she read 1 through 17. She read the story of the spiral of David's life from being somewhere he didn't belong to eventual murder. And at the end, you said, thanks be to God. How? How in the world could you read this passage or we read this passage and you respond, thanks be to God? How is it possible to read the story and respond, thanks be to God? Here's how. Chapter 12 is coming. Chapter 12 is coming. You see, chapter 11 ends like this. God looking at what David has done and saying, this is evil in my eyes. And chapter 12 opens like this. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and he said to him, there were two men in a certain city, one rich, the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man, he had nothing. Hey, David, the poor man, he's got nothing. Nothing but one little ooh lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. And he used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Hey, hey David, David, the poor man. Nathan to David. Hey, David, the poor man. He, he had one lamb, and he loved it. It was all he had, David. All that he had, and he loved it. Now there came a traveler to the rich man. And he, the rich man, was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd and prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Hey, David. David, the rich man, swimming in cash, man. He wouldn't feed the guest with his own lamb. So he went and stole from the poor man, brought it in, fed him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said it to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, you're the man. You're the man, David. You're the one who has done this thing. And in a flash, David's sin is exposed. David is brought into the light, which is the most loving and gracious thing God could have possibly done to David, was to send Nathan to out him, which leads to verse 13, where David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. 
I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, nevertheless, David, because you did this deed and have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who was born to you shall die. David's confession. Guilty. I'm guilty. I'm guilty, Nathan. I'm guilty. I have sinned against the Lord. I have done this. I'm guilty. And this confession of David's, it's what leads to restoration. And I get it. Restoration isn't really very visible right here. Right here what we see is David losing the son as a consequence. But the story doesn't end here. The story keeps moving forward. And when we hit Matthew 1, Matthew 1 is the first chapter in the New Testament. It's the beginning of the story of Jesus coming onto the scene. And it opens with his lineage. It opens with his family tree. And you know what's in the heart of of his family tree. Here's what's in the heart of his family tree. Matthew 1, 6. And David was the father of Solomon, who was the next son he was going to have from Bathsheba. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. You know what Matthew could have said right there? He could have said the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, but he didn't. He said father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. You know why? You know what the story of the Bible is? Here's what the story of the Bible is. The story of the Bible is the story of the most broken of our stories being redeemed by Jesus. That's what the story of the Bible is. The most broken, heart-wrenching, gut-wrenching stories that you and I have lived through being redeemed by the story of the one who was to come, the one who would go to the cross and on the cross Corinthians is going to say became our sin. In other words, he went to the cross and he heard from the Father, you're the man. While hanging there, he heard, you're the man. Yeah, David was guilty, but right now, Jesus, you are hanging in his place right now. You're the man for him. And when we read 2 Samuel 11, in the narrative of the entire Bible, you know what it says? It says that there is no one, no one. There's not a single person in this room. There's not a single person in your life. There's not a single person on our block. So far gone, so broken, that the grace of God cannot reroute their life. That's what 2 Samuel 11 says. That's what the story is. But in the beginning, in the beginning, I, I said, um, if we'll listen, we'll, we'll find some practical help on how to um, avoid the road David went down and what to do if we're already on it. And so I want, I want to leave you with three practical things. Three practical things. One, get a Nathan. Two, be a Nathan. Three, live like David. Not the I killed a man part, but we'll get to that. First, get a Nathan. Nathan spoke honestly to David about what David did, and he spoke honestly to David about the consequences of David's action. Have the courage 
and it takes courage. Have the courage to let someone speak into your life. Preferably long before you get down the road. Preferably someone close enough to you to know, hey, you're somewhere you don't belong. This doesn't lead anywhere good. Have the courage to let someone speak into your life. Because let me, let me, let me say it this way. Cowardice does not help communal sanctification. Sanctification is our way of living our life like Jesus. Our communal life looking and being formed into the life of Jesus. Being unwilling to let someone speak into our lives does not help you and does not help us be more and more shaped into the life of Christ. And then be a Nathan. Be a Nathan. And, and uh, let me say right here why get a Nathan came before be a Nathan. And here's why. If you're not, if you're not willing to listen, you're not ready to speak. So if you're not willing to listen to others, let others speak into your life because you've got blind spots. David had blind spots. I've got blind spots. We've all got them. But if we're not willing to let people speak into our blind spots, we're not ready to speak into others. But be an eighth and have the courage to speak into one another's lives because cowardice doesn't help our communal sanctification. It doesn't. It doesn't help our community be more and more like Jesus. We need the courage to listen and we need the courage to speak. doesn't mean we verbally bust one another up. This is not MMA with words. We speak truth in love. Kind, gracious, loving, honest words. And you know how um, the, the, the narrative of David, um, Nathan David ended? David repents. Nathan speaks honestly. You know what verse 15 said? Nathan went to his house. Repentant people don't need to be constantly reminded of their flaws. He just went to his house. So get a Nathan, be a Nathan, and then live like David. Listen to the opening of Psalm 51, written by David. Listen to the timing of it. To the choir master, a Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him, after he had gone into Bathsheba. Psalm 51, written in response to what David has just done. And he says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. What do you do if you're already on the road? Like if you identified with the spiral, what do you do? Like sex is long past transactional for you. Let Psalm 51 be your cry in your darkest moment, in your darkest hour. Let Psalm 51 be your cry. Follow David to the fountain of grace where you can cry out, steadfast love, abundant mercy, wash me, wash me. Follow him. Follow David to the fountain of grace. Because in that fountain, here's what you're going to find. You're going to find the rhythm of grace. The rhythm of give my life away, not the rhythm of take, take, take. Follow David to Psalm 51. Get a Nathan. Be a Nathan. Live like David. Let's pray.
Father, I, um, I really don't know the words to pray right now. Confess, I don't, I don't know the right thing to ask for other than, Father, if we're on the road, would you get us off of it? Would you lead us to Psalm 51 that we might not ever get on the road in the first place? Would you give us the courage to be Nathan's? Give us the courage to get Nathan's. So that our heart might be softened where it's been numbed and life that's become transactional might no longer be transactional. May we find fountain of life that is in Christ. We know that this is uh, your work. We, we can't just create this. We can't just talk it into being. And so we're asking you to do it. And we ask in Christ's name. Amen.